Hello, and welcome to another edition of Your Therapist Needs Therapy, the podcast where two mental health professionals talk about their mental health journeys and how they navigate mental wellness while working in the mental health field. Uh, I have a guest I'm super excited for today. Uh, I have a registered professional counselor uh, that's a Canadian reference for those of you who are maybe my American listeners that's counseling in Canada. Uh, so a foreigner, but somebody who's a, a big deal in the religious trauma community. So I'm very excited to have Janice Selby joining me today. Janice, thanks for taking the time to, to join me. Yay, I'm so happy you asked me. Thank you. Yeah, you have a wonderful story, uh, uh, fascinating, maybe not wonderful, a fascinating story, which we'll get into. But you know, I have a laundry list of founder of the conference uh, on religious trauma host of the Divorcing Religion podcast. Again, I think just uh, we've had similar people on our podcast. You had a bunch of speakers at uh, Court 2023 who have been on my podcast. So like, again, just kind of, I think, building this religious trauma community uh, that's really wonderful for those of us who remember deconverting and not knowing or knowing about some of this community, really building that's it right. up. Yes. And then a few years ago, or a couple years ago, I also did another conference, which I may do again. Uh, and it was called Shameless Sexuality, Life After Purity Culture. And I loved that. That was one of my favorite uh, conferences to do. It was just really fun and uh, exciting and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we'll get into all of that. But I always like to start with what was your journey into working in the mental health field? Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> I think like a great many of us, it started at home with, uh, you know, things being not quite right. So I, I went into, uh, I became a registered professional counselor and I have another sibling who became a nurse uh, on the um, mental health ward, the psychiatric ward of our mm -hmm. hospital. So having a dad who is a, a narcissist with cluster B traits and then also a fundamentalist very difficult. Didn't make growing up easy or a lot of fun and meant living with um, a lot of fear. And of course, so then I uh, was really always very busy trying to follow rules and find new rules to follow. And that really informed my Christianity and kind of what drove me down the rabbit hole of fundamentalism when I um, discovered the Haldeman Mennonites in Canada. And they're a closed um, Mennonite sect mm -hmm. uh excuse me i got cat hair here um yeah so that's kind of what got me uh started and then i was i remained i was a devout christian for uh most of my life i didn't even really start to question uh until i was around 40 mm -hmm. and then um it was like that I tell people it was like holding a beach ball underwater and all the pressures building and building. And finally, take your hands off and the ball shoots up and water sprays everywhere. And it was messy. My deconversion experience was messy and painful and terrifying. And I still had kids at home and I was still married to a believer who had also been a pastor. And um, so it was really an intense um, journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was growing up in this fundamentalist household? What was kind of like the messaging you got around mental health growing up and kind of your decision to pursue a career in the mental health field? What was that journey like? Yeah. Um, 
So I learned early on, and I, I do think this, whenever people blurt out to me, I'm an empath, like they wear that title or whatever. And I think it's possible you grew up in an unsafe home environment and you had to learn very early on how to read the emotions of other people in order to be safe. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, that's where I fall into things. And I had one brother that was decidedly a black sheep, one brother that was decidedly a comic, you know, trying to always, uh, sure. and then, and then there was me and I was the youngest uh, child. So yeah, having to, I learned how to hide and how to blend in, how to be exceedingly diplomatic, how to fawn, uh, mm. to stay safe, um, how to freeze and how to stuff my feelings or eat my feelings. Um, all those things that go along with essentially having a parent who was, uh, or two parents, who were addicted to religion. So I don't know if you've heard me use the term acorns. I, I look at the adult children of alcoholics and and we as acorns, adult children of religious nuts, share a laundry list often with uh, yeah. COA um, folks. And that was very eye-opening for me. It explained a lot. So that's something that I uh, kind of keep tucked into the, the back of my mind. And I'm I'm now estranged from uh, my fundamentalist father. And that mm -hmm. only happened a few years ago. And it was such a massive relief. And it's it's not a relief for everyone. And it's not the right move for everyone uh, to make. But yeah. um, for me, it was. Uh, after which I thought, oh, I wish I would have done that years, uh, years earlier. But, yeah. you know. It's still, it doesn't mean I don't think about them. And so, yeah, there are still um, nothing. You don't get away scot-free in any sense. There are always uh, things that kind of hang on. There's residual for sure. Yeah. And and so then after I, um, when I divorced religion, divorced my husband, uh, I had been working at our local hospital. I did medical transcription for years and years, but I was always super intrigued by psychology mm -hmm. and I love doing the psychiatry reports and I thought okay I know there is a college of professional counseling in my city I'm going to see what that's like so that was my uh, that was my starting point so I um, completed that and then uh, did 600 uh, supervised hours um, through my governing body Canadian Professional mm -hmm. Council Association and and even when I finished all that, so that's when I started looking at my own trauma, even just the trauma of growing up in a family of origin with an extremely volatile, uh, narcissistic parent. I wasn't even touching on the religious <laughs> end of things at that point. Uh, yeah. And then um, eventually when I realized, yeah, I don't actually believe any of this and and started researching and thought, I'm... I have a lot in common with people who have come out of cults as I would read what they were having to say. And I would tell myself, well, that's ridiculous. I, I, that wasn't, that wasn't my situation. And the more I read, the more I went, Oh boy, this is, this is serious. But I didn't know anyone else who um, had been as devout as I was. I was 
I was so devout. I utterly believed and I, I wore a head covering and I, you know, didn't watch TV for years and I only listened to Christian music, you know, all those things. And um, so for me to have done such a complete turnaround on mm -hmm. all that, I didn't know anyone else who had and then had gone on to live a happy, healthy life. Uh, and so finally I found online one day I found Dr. Marlene Winnell, and she, uh, her book, Leaving the Fold, was such a help for me. And and I phoned her up because I was so uh, excited and couldn't believe that someone had written about this. And that book is years old now. It's like 25 years old, 30 years old, yeah. whatever it is. 19, 1994, <laughs> I think. Yes. And and yeah. I phoned her, and she said, well you know, you're, you're on the West Coast and I'm uh, running some retreats in uh, San Francisco. Come join us. Come see what it's like. And I was terrified that it was a cult. And I was so scared as I got on the plane. I'm like, I don't know any of these people. What if I disappear and I never come back? And of course that didn't happen. And uh, I felt so um, just embraced and seen and validated. And there were people uh, at her retreat who come from all different backgrounds are people who left Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Catholicism, Evangelicalism, um, every kind of group you can imagine. So our situations were somewhat different, but our pain was mm -hmm. similar and we were on a similar journey and being able to freely give voice to some of those things where there was no other place really that uh, I thought I could do it. It was tremendously helpful. So, uh, I, I love Marlene. And in fact, I met my future husband through Marlene. So, <laughs> so there's a yeah. little plug for her. Uh, Journey Free is her, uh, is her website. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Leaving and, the Fold I, is uh, still a classic. It's on my bookshelf in my office right now because like it, it is from 1994, but fundamentalism hasn't changed a ton there. Their playbook works, so they keep doing it. It's so and so true. it's incredibly relevant still today. Yes, yes. And then uh, I came back from her retreat and I was reflecting a lot on my own experience. And I thought, I'm going to put together a workshop. Um, and so I did. And I called it the Divorcing Religion Workshop because I was divorcing, going through divorce after a 20 year marriage, uh, you know, roughly the same time that I was divorcing my religion. And there was so much there that was relatable that felt similar, such an incredible loss. And people can't understand that loss, really, unless they've gone through it. Um, so because we've got the disenfranchised grief going on, the ambiguous loss, there's no body to bury. It's not uh, grief that's socially sanctioned. Because, I mean, if you phone your boss and say, oh, my God, my dog died, they're like, take the day. Like, it's so significant. But if you say... I just lost my religious faith, which of course means my identity, my community, my worldview, everything is dissolving around me. <clears throat> I will see you tomorrow at nine o'clock. You'll be okay. Uh, but it's, it really, it sent me into a time of existential angst and crisis. I remember phoning up one of my brothers, the one who's the um, nurse, and he is an avowed atheist. Um, <clears throat> I remember phoning him up and he was so pleased to watch my deconversion, but he didn't want to intrude 
at all. Wanted it to let me be my journey. But I, I texted him one night or phoned him or something. And I said, oh boy, I just realized <clears throat> if hell isn't, if hell isn't real, maybe heaven's not real either. And it was a, for me, that was a very big uh, thing. And I realize you'll have listeners on, on every aspect of the belief um, spectrum. So this is just my journey and the conclusions I came to. Uh, and my brother was so kind. Uh, and he uh, told me that he remembered um, going through that and he recommended uh, a video by this uh, German video producers, I think called Kurzgesagt, which means in a nutshell. And the video was called Optimistic Nihilism. And he said, watch the video, watch it straight through to the end, and then let's talk some more uh, about it. It was super helpful uh, for me, but still that aspect of uh, my deconstruction was painful, you know, and I missed praying every day, talking to Jesus every day. I missed having a cosmic big brother. I missed the, I missed certainty, certainty, security, and order, and acceptance are like our main things as humans that we really crave, and I think it gave me compassion now as so many people have gone down conspiracy rabbit holes and been sucked into those mindsets um, because we do all crave certainty and security and order and acceptance and for some of those folks it's the first time they have ever felt accepted if they're on the fringes uh, I mean if they have never really received acceptance by people at school if they've always been kind of outsiders it feels overwhelming to to be accepted and then to be told that you have the secret sauce mm, you alone know what's uh, what's going on that's pretty heady stuff and uh so i get it i because i also thought that way at one point yeah yeah it's it's fascinating when you know what you're looking for how it jumps out at you seeing a lot of these mind control tactics, you know, I, I know you think highly of, of Stephen Hassan's work around uh, cult mind control. And like, I refer to the bite model all the time of like, Same. <laughs> this is, this is the Republican playbook in the, in American politics, like create an enemy, make fear of the enemy, promise a savior. Like it's so much of it is religion 101. And yeah, I think when you've gone through it, it, it does open up some different pathways in your brain to hold space for those people differently than be like, why, why would anyone believe this or why would anyone support this? Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I have to say, the farther out I get from the beliefs that I had, the more I shake my head and I'm like, oh, I can't believe that I believed that. And yet I did believe it. I, yeah. I believed it to the extent that I was willing to die for it. I believed it to the extent that I tried to prepare my children for mm. martyrdom in that eventuality because it was i grew up in the satanic panic um time so yeah uh lots of <clears throat> cringy behavior i definitely had apologies and amends to make to my children not only for raising them in such a confining fundamentalist way in the first place and filling them with fear but for then giving them a front row seat to my deconstruction gong show which had to be terrifying uh, and very freaky. See your mom go from being this head covering 
you know, saintly whatever to, oh my God, now we got tattoos. Now we got dreadlocks. Now we're doing this. Now we're doing it had to be um, shocking and feel like the rug was pulled out mm-hmm. from under them. And so thankfully now this is like, I don't know, 14 years later, it's going on 14 years, something like that. So my kids are now in there well into their twenties. Uh, and we have very good relationships, very open communication and same with their dad. I mean, we're not married anymore, but just a wonderful friendship. He also uh, doesn't, um, he wouldn't consider himself a believer anymore. Um, But we just had him over for Christmas. Like, of course it's Christmas dinner. Well, we're going to have him over because he's part of the family. So that's pretty nice considering I do have a new, uh, new husband. So, yeah. Yeah, and I love that analogy of the divorcing religion because it is a lot like deconstructing a marriage and then the reconstruction that happens, especially if you have kids. There's co-parenting, there's all this re-establishing different boundaries and you can build something healthy out of it. That's not what always happens, but like there are these opportunities and it, it yeah, I love that analogy. My background's marriage and family therapy, so that's my introduction to psychology is always kind of having that systemic view and yeah, it's it's identity stuff, being a spouse and then being single is a shift, being a Christian and then being agnostic or atheist or pagan or wherever you land, like all these things are there's so much overlap where I love I love that analogy that you've kind of landed on for this is what it is like to deconstruct. It it really is and it's it's not it's not as simple as well here you do a b and c because it's different for each person and because we we kind of filter experiences uh, and interpret them through the lens of our personality uh and this is the same when we are in mourning when we have grief and loss uh we kind of we are expressing that again in keeping with our personality in keeping with what we saw modeled for us in our home you know, were we safe at home to express these uh, concerns, to express our sadness? And I don't know about your home, but in my home, my dad could yell and scream and punch his fist through the wall. We could either be happy or we could quietly cry, but we could never be angry. We mm-hmm. could never express a difference of opinion. That would not be celebrated. C- curiosity was quickly stamped out uh, and replaced with obedience the first time, every time. That was mm-hmm. what was expected uh, in our home. And and I went even more gung-ho on my uh, poor kids, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to, to look at. You kind of have to get some distance from it and be able to look at it and take it apart, uh, see where things went off the rails. And um, then again, like you said, that the bite model has been profoundly helpful for a lot of people. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's not uh, perfect, but it's a great kind of, here's something to look at right away. If you're thinking of getting involved in a new group or if you're in a relationship that has, so you're going, oh, I'm not sure about this, because as we know, I heard this from Dr. Rachel Bernstein. I love her indoctrination podcast. And one time she said, when we're wearing rose-colored glasses, a red flag just looks like a flag. just looks like a normal flag. And that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you grow up in it, when you're raised in it, like you are taught to either ignore or proceed with some of those flags as like, oh, well, 
this is a test of your faith or this, you know, there's all the spiritual bypassing that creates an environment where ignoring your feelings is good because your body is sinful or, you know, so there's, yeah, I do this work professionally. And yet when I'm recording or, or saying some of this stuff out loud, I'm just like, oh yeah, it feels so gross when you like call it out that way. <laughs> but it is. It, but is. it is. Yeah. yeah. And I'm always um, interested when, people reach out to me and they are still religious because that is not particularly the realm that I'm in. I typically am working with people who uh, have left uh, religion in some way. They either, you know, stumble out of the church, were thrown out of the church, whatever happened, they recognize that's not uh, the place for them anymore. But I do st sometimes hear from folks who, are still members of their church, but they're going, I think some things are not right here. Um, and so uh, sometimes, uh, you know, I'm pretty frank with them and sometimes they want to work with me. And sometimes I am able to refer them on uh, to people like uh, Dr. Laura Anderson um, or others who uh, maybe still have more inroads into communities that are faith communities um and yeah. i'm not uh, i'm not inside those those groups at all so but i think there's there are counselors and therapists needed for people everywhere in all yeah. different spaces so i'm grateful that there are many people doing this work yeah yeah and it's one of those things that i see a lot where the growth of podcasts, the books that are getting published, um, the conferences, things like that are all growing. And one of the things from I, that I hear from professionals all the time is like, I didn't know this community existed when I was in the church. And, and I have been out of the church for a little, maybe a little over five years. And it's like, right, like these things existed. I just didn't have access to them. Like, not only did I not know they existed, but I had been taught to avoid them. Yeah. And that oh, yeah. people who weren't raised in it, I think, missed that point that like, oh, yeah, like, you can look at it in an agnostic family and say, well, this stuff's always been available. But for those of us who are raised fundamentalist, like, it absolutely was not the library I had in my church or in my school, which was connected to the church, was not the public library. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. And we were taught. Uh, so if we're introduced to these concepts as children, and it's our parents or caregivers, some adult authority figure says to us they deliver this to us this is the truth and it's a fearful truth and you must not diverge from this truth or you'll end up in hell uh and we are just little kids we don't have any ability to discern whether it's true or not we just know this person's responsible for my safety i better believe them we gobble up whatever they're feeding us and then it's like we put all these psychological booby traps around it so we don't pull on that one thread that's hanging down and then eventually because of tragedy or because of whatever's going on we start tugging and sure enough the whole thing begins to and that's like the most terrifying part of it because we start to realize what could be the cost all that we stand to lose um if we are no longer members of the club yeah and and the club has been for a lot of people like reinforced over and over and over again that like people who leave the club or are excommunicated or kicked out like struggle and when you have no personal reference for people who weren't religious or the same religion as you, like you don't, you don't know what that story outside of the churches. Right. And, you know, I mentioned earlier about people 
you know, we have our temperaments and our personalities. And so some people I think can, uh, can walk through their deconstruction and they don't actually have the, the gong show kind of uh, story right. that, that mine is. I happen to be quite an extreme person. It's, I have to work very hard to find the middle. So I was extreme in my faith. And then when I left and left my marriage and I, I found someone else and I moved in uh, with him, this person was unencumbered by things that had encumbered me and had lots of money. And, and, and they were somewhat amused by, you know, the changes I was going through. And this person said, you know, go to town, knock yourself out. Uh, I've got the money to uh, let you enjoy anything you want. So I thought, oh, I'm going to deny myself nothing. And so that's really, I think, when my kids' eyes got like five points because I denied myself uh, nothing. And so that didn't look, you know, that wasn't the best way actually to go about it. And I'm thankful that I made it through <laughs> safe and in, in one piece because that was very much for me like the adolescence I never had. And the stakes right. were much higher because I was an adult. I had more to lose. Um so I went through that again, uh, experienced it through my personality and my temperament. And now I've come back to more of what I see as more of a middle ground, even though my middle is pretty left for, for some people. Um, but I feel like my feet are firmly on the ground again after years of just being in free fall or feeling like I was trying to walk in uh, quicksand or whatever. So yeah, now I'm going to be 54 soon. And I got to say, okay, my fifties so far looking pretty good, like pretty, <laughs> pretty level. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, uh, you know, there's a bit of a trope of that, like leave the church and, and go do all the stuff that you weren't allowed. I think it's healing for some people. I think mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. good to curb some of it because it can get unhealthy, unchecked. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. a, a lot of that has to do with, I think, what you're talking about. Everybody's variables are a little bit different. When you're deconverting, what brand of religion you grew up in? Because again, I think fundamentalism scales. Um, and so a lot of that stuff changes. Like for me, it was every time I doubted, my response was like to try and believe harder. Oh, and yeah. So, I was I was in the church for so much longer than I needed to be because it was like I was just I kept trying to be like make it make sense like I'm gonna I'm the problem let me fix it through oh, reading more theses and it's like a weird high school kid reading pastoral theses um, <laughs> and like all these things to try and make it fit and like finally having kids myself like I'm not gonna teach my kid Noah's Ark like I don't like having that recognition of, like I don't believe in it and I've been a therapist for many years at that point being like this isn't healthy to teach a, a toddler either. Right. But again, it was through my late teens, through my early twenties, going to college when people deconstruct or leave the church a lot. Like my response was like, I'm going to believe harder. I was mm -hmm. 25 and on my church council, like similar, different scenario, but similar kind of what you were doing was like, right. You just kept going deeper and deeper into it. Yeah. And, and when I was married and in a fundamentalist marriage, uh, it was similar to what you're saying. I saw these cracks, uh, you know, appearing, but every time I was like, it can't be him. He's my God-given head, my, <clears throat> pardon me, my spiritual authority. I'm talking about my first husband here, um, because that's what I was raised to uh, believe. And the model I saw also was um, um, my dad being, uh, you know, narcissistic and unhealthy 
Well, and, and he had a wife who was delightful and codependent. And mm -hmm. so that was the model um, that I had. So I, I didn't marry someone who was uh, narcissistic, but I did marry someone who was emotionally unavailable. Uh, and then me being nothing but emotion, you know, it felt like, and then, you know, not, it just wasn't, it seemed in some ways to be following the script that I was uh, raised with. And like you, I said, the problem has to be me. I'm going to double down. That's why I started wearing a head covering because I thought I'm, I'm too, you know, I talk too much or I talk back too much or I'm too, I'm not submissive enough. So my whole marriage was me trying to dull my shine, trying to, to pull back, make myself smaller and smaller. And it wasn't helping. It didn't make things better. We just, we were not really, um, we weren't good partners for each other. We married only because we were both Christians and because I was, Oh, good grief. I was 23. I was worried I was going to be an old mate. So, <laughs> so that's why we married. Um, and then when we divorced, uh, it was it was sad, but it was such a relief because I was no longer trying to constantly change him and make him someone he wasn't. And he was no longer living with constantly feeling that he wasn't um, good enough. It was so it, divorce is not a failure. It's a transition. Yeah. And that's, I think, the healthiest way to look at it. And I mean, we only have however many years <laughs> that we have uh, on this planet. So you can choose to live it as a martyr or, you know, spend that time living someone else's dream for you, what they think your life should be, or uh, you can decide, you know what, this is my life. I'm going to yeah. find out what's important to me, not what someone else says is important. Because the church and the pastor and the parents and the spouse often telling us what's important. But I'm actually going to figure out for myself what my values are. Love the values clarification stuff. Uh, and then I'm going to order my life accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. And the church works so hard to keep us away from that. You know, it is not trusting your body. Um, I know uh, Mars Shopman, who spoke at court uh, this past year, he's just on my podcast recently and talked about like how he just wanted to dance. He just wanted to listen to music. And like, that was this thing that the church tried to to protect from. And so like purity culture and like ideas of headship within the family and all that stuff is designed to be like, right, you're not supposed to feel good. So like when you don't, that's you're doing it. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And then you get out of it. And you're like, oh, right. That just wasn't healthy for me. If I'm genuine and authentic, it feels much better. Oh, yeah. I love Mars. I was so glad, <clears throat> pardon me, to have Mars on the conference. Um, you've probably heard me or you might have heard me talk um, on my podcast about my my view of life as a huge buffet table. And there are delectable dishes as far as the eye can see and each dish represents experiences and religion fundamentalist religion especially would have us starve to death at the buffet table of life mm -hmm. but we don't actually have to live that way we can try a bit of any anything every dish on there you know as long as we're not breaking the law as long as we're not hurting someone we can try things and we might like it so much we go back for seconds and thirds or we might discreetly spit it into our napkin and say, well, that wasn't for me, but we don't have to judge it. 
we can say, and now I'm going to go on to the next thing. So giving ourselves permission to be curious, and that's really foreign to a lot of us raised in fundamentalist homes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that idea of something is right and something is wrong, and you always have to do your work to pick the right thing. Um, You you talk about having a parent who has mental illness. This is a, a thing that registers for me too, like a lot of fundamentalist religions um, or cults, there's, they're the same, but (laughs) (laughs) uh, have all these rules and regulations that people who have uh, mental illness or are struggling with some sort of mental health issue are drawn to because it provides structure to their life. And so in, in my history too, like I was late diagnosed ADHD and there was an aspect of the black and white thinking that fundamentalism, fundamentalism provided that my brain liked. Like I liked to have rules and regulations. I liked to highlight what other people were doing wrong. Um, and you know, like uh, learning about my diagnosis later in life, but also looking back at like, oh, that helped me in some ways and really hindered me in a lot of ways. Um, but I do think there's that, that pull, there's that draw of people who are looking for structure and support. Like at first the black and white thinking seems helpful because it provides structure, but then it becomes very limiting very quickly. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, that same brother who's the nurse, he has a phrase that he, he uses and I really like it. Uh, something may be a good servant, but a poor master. Uh, Mm -hmm. and I think I think that's true. Like it's it's important to be able to see. Yeah, if something is um, truly dangerous for us, we don't want to go there. But sometimes we're just we're programmed to think it's dangerous, and it's not actually that dangerous. But we were only raised with you know right and wrong binary thinking, and it's it's hard to get used to and accept the nuance because that comes also with responsibility. And again, in fundamentalism, we, we were told what we could and couldn't do. So we didn't have, we weren't flexing the responsibility muscles um, as much. Yeah. And there's very little actual uh, accountability within religious groups. It's God will judge. It's, you know, all the spiritual bypassing we use to let leaders be abusive or move from church to church without any real life accountability. Yeah. And, and I mean, we know that predators are drawn to places where they uh, can rise up in the ranks, be in positions of power. This is something that I end up talking with my clients with a fair amount um, if they bring up the word forgiveness. And I tell them, for us, forgiveness is the F word sometimes because it has been weaponized uh, by abusers, by those who have wanted to retain power over us. They can abuse us and insist that we uh, forgive them. And then they have the same opportunity over and over again. So I tell my clients instead, we are going to work on acceptance of reality this thing actually happened. This was done to me, this happened, or this is something that I did. So that's kind of, that radical acceptance brings clarity. Once we actually can hold on to that, that gives us a clearer view of what decisions that we have that we can make. So in my case, when I um, accepted, uh, came the reality that my father not only was a narcissist, but that he actually had crossed some um, significant boundaries with me. Then 
I no longer felt like I had to keep trying to forgive him. Then I got to say, oh, wait a minute. He's done this over and over and over. Do I actually want this person in my life? Do I want to keep giving them access to me, my children, my family? And I thought, no, I'm done. And it was so uh, it was so liberating because people if, insisting someone forgive is like blaming the victim when they mm -hmm. have a hard time forgiving. Well, there's a reason they're having a hard time because the other person either isn't truly sorry, repentant, however you want to say it. Uh, so we really need to take responsibility for who we are allowing uh, access in our life. Yeah, yeah, and ignoring I think the oppressive and uh... Uh, patriarchal structures that are attached to these things like forgiveness within an oppressive system doesn't make sense like that's <laughs> that's backwards if we're not addressing that the oppressive system exists because then the victims were, were we can't treat people equally because there's not equality yet oh yeah and oppression is something that i'm still just learning about i feel like i just am seeing the tip uh of the iceberg you know as a privileged white woman in a, you know, Christian Christian type of uh, society, um, I'm I'm <clears throat> pulling away layers as fast as I can, but I still don't see it uh, all. And so then I'm trying to learn more uh, from um, people of color who who obviously have lived with significant oppression and continue to their entire uh, lives and reading things that they have to say and then turning the lens back on myself and saying, oh my God, what ways, how have I participated in oppressing other people? It's very uncomfortable. I don't yeah. like it uh, at all, but I, it's so um, necessary. And I have great hopes for because of your generation and and the generations of my daughters um i think they're seeing things more clearly as when i look at things around sexuality and uh gender and identity they don't care <laughs> they, yeah. they don't care they're like okay that's great you be you uh mm -hmm. you know no no what do we want to do today like they just don't have those same hang-ups and i love that and that's so terrifying for for some older people uh you know even people my age um midlife and older uh or people who are still stuck in um fundamentalism they really don't like it that the status quo is being challenged and shaken up but that's the only way our planet's going to survive i think is yep. by some some people getting somewhat radical and really in our face and reminding us of the cost if we don't turn things around yeah yeah i'm hopeful when i interact with the younger generation as well and and i think you know things like this things like court um I keep using that acronym the conference on religious trauma like uh, having therapists, having people from different perspectives, queer folks, people of color, um, people who are talking about like, decolonizing therapy, like that's a, a concept that I love and am digging into in my practice because um, it's different being neurodivergent than being a minority uh, ethnicity, but like it is a minority group and there's so much that I relate to when I'm hearing and reading from these authors who are talking about let's decolonize therapy. like oh, that's what my brain's been like trying to figure out. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Someone else is already doing this work. So like, I do think a lot of that stuff is is really wonderful and, and hopeful. And 
working with religious trauma, then we see the religious groups getting more and more extreme in response, which tends to happen throughout history is civil rights movement. And then you get, you know, 20 years later, you get Ronald Reagan in response. Mm -hmm. So like, there's this move in culture and religion and fundamentalism specifically want to protect the status quo. And so yes. there's this response of extremism on the rise or the people who are staying in the church are the more fundamentalist or extremist people where mm -hmm. other people are leaving and getting out. So it's oh, yeah. interesting to see the cultural changes and also the pendulum try and swing back in the other direction. And when I, <laughs> when I think of people who have gone from being fundamentalists to more progressive and I hear them say, but I, I don't want to leave. I want to stay and bring change from the inside. I think of my experience on Twitter. <clears throat> Pardon me. I love Twitter so much. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's on there working hard and, you know, gaining my thousands or 10,000, something like that, followers. And then it gets bought over by Lex Luthor. <laughs> and, 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 and saying saying every terrible Lex thing. <laughs> do, yeah, and doing every terrible thing. And I'm like, stop, please stop talking. Please stop saying anything. Because eventually it gets to a point where I'm like, I don't even feel comfortable being no. in this space anymore. And so then I'm like, oh my God, okay, well, then I tried Mastodon, I tried Threads, and now the other day I just got on blue sky and it's just so tiring like and and i had a good thing i had people who would uh, pay attention when i said something and it was helpful for advertising as well when i had events coming up and these sorts of things so um yeah it's just been interesting i feel like podcasts are super helpful um and actually I told you this when we just started. I had such an exciting guest on my podcast yesterday. I got to interview the the icon, the legend, the author, the Canadian, Margaret Atwood. Uh, and she, of course, is very well known for The Handmaid's Tale. She's written like tons of stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. But Handmaid's Tale then, of course, also got picked up and turned into a TV series, um, which opened it up for a bunch of new generations. Uh, mm -hmm. And when I watched that series on TV, The Handmaid's Tale, it was it, like sometimes I had to shut it off because it just reminded me so much of my own life that I willingly kept tightening kept pushing that beach ball farther and farther underwater yeah. other people weren't doing it to me my my ex-husband he wasn't insisting that i get more and more fundamentalist i was putting that pressure on myself but so right. i'm watching about the handmaids and they have no voice and they have no choice and they're always got to cover their hair and wear these uh, you know robes and um so when i saw that i thought oh i'd like to be able to talk to this lady and then my uh, amazing husband says, oh, he says, I know her. I said, what? <laughs> but he's, you know, he's 22 years older than me. And he said, oh, yeah, I went bird watching with her and her husband. I used to fly to Toronto and stay with them. And then we'd fly to Cuba because he's from the United States. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you told me. <laughs> write her a letter immediately <laughs> and say, yeah. Please come on my podcast. You've made such a difference in, in my life. And also, by the way, my husband remembers you and had fun bird watching with you. And I didn't uh, didn't expect actually to hear from her because she is very busy. Um, yep. 
and sure enough, I heard back. And so yesterday I got to meet her on my podcast and talk with her. So yeah. I hope that, uh, I hope it went well. It was hard. It was hard to stay in my body because I was all like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it was interesting because she wasn't raised um, religious. Her dad was a scientist, uh, but she is obviously extremely bright very well educated and a real student of history. So she sees how some of these things uh, repeat themselves. Yeah. 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 I love, uh, I love podcasts because they are much more deplatformed than anything else. You know, I know you have a, a pretty successful YouTube channel that's been growing and has been a project to grow it because that takes active work to do some of these things. And like, there's always that fear of like, you put in all this work and build this thing that you don't actually have control over. And then, right some major corporation buys it out or YouTube's adding 90 second unskippable ads, which is irritating or whatever, you know? And so I like, I also enjoy the podcasting aspect of like, right. It's, it's spread out. It's a little less platforms and people can find it. And yeah. yes, I've had that experience as a host where when I get therapists on the podcast, they feel pretty good. Like we're peers. I'm cool. I know about psychology. We can have these conversations. And I had a, a famous comic book writer on and I was like, small podcast no reason he should have agreed to be on it other than like the pitch that i gave was like here's the religious trauma and all the books that you've written here's how i want to talk about it like and he's like yeah cool let's do it but wow. like that fanboy moment of like i can't believe i'm talking to this person oh that's so cool what who was the uh comic book uh jason jason aaron who uh, is an eisner award winner there are only 16 of them um because because Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman won it so many times, but uh, he wrote Thor for many years. So people who watch the MCU, a lot of his work on Thor is the wow. character that we've seen in the MCU. And I'm a comic book nerd. So like, again, it's when you get that person who you're like, I can't believe I'm interviewing this person. It's so much different than when we're in our, I don't know, area of expertise. That's very exciting. And I do in some ways feel like we're, we're in uncharted uh, territory as far as um, continuing to try and shed light on uh, religious trauma. So, I mean, mm -hmm. Dr. Winnell and Dr. Ray, Daryl Ray, they both been at it about the same amount of time. Daryl, of course, founded uh, Recovering from Religion. And then, of course, uh, Annie Laurie and Dan over at Freedom from Religion Foundation. So they've all been in it for decades. But otherwise, I, I just... I haven't been uh, aware, but over the last five years, whoosh, there's been like yeah. the floodgates are open. So um, I've got my practice doing my podcast. I am working on my book. I'm supposed to publish it this summer. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that's something else. And then I told you I went to um, some of Marlene's retreats, Dr. Winnell's retreats. And um Sometimes while I was there, there was a small film crew from Sweden who was filming a documentary. So, of course, we have to sign releases and, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so my husband and I met through those retreats. And uh, when we got married, the film crew was finishing up this documentary. And we said, well, come on over and film our wedding. And so they did. And they stayed in our town and we got to spend more time with them. And it's just uh, the cinematic premiere is going to be in Stockholm in April. And we're going out there for that. And the documentary is called Leaving Jesus. Uh, and I'm, I certainly don't uh, 
factor into it very much at all. My husband is more in, in it, but certainly we know the other people as well. So we're going to have a nice reunion in Stockholm yeah. in April around this documentary. So things are changing. More and more people are learning about uh, religious trauma, religious trauma syndrome, and the recovery help that's available. Yeah. Which is is great. We have all this research that says the nuns, the N-O-N-E, um, mm -hmm. people who identify with no religion is, is way on the rise. We know church attendance is way down. And so I think it is an interesting time where a lot of people are seeking out this help and this support and the community, because that's really hard when people leave religion. They're scared of what's going to replace that community. And so all these different wonderful folks building online communities, starting to build in-person communities, like that's the stuff that people are needing as they're leaving different versions of, of whatever religion they were in. Right. And I really do encourage people not just to be uh, building their online communities. That's kind of the first thing that we do because we're looking things up online. Where are these mm -hmm. uh, groups for other people like me? Because we can still also be really experiencing a lot of anger at that point. And we know to some degree, like attracts like. If someone else is really angry and shouting about something and we feel really angry, you know, we might get in there and start shouting about it too. And anger is a legitimate part of the grieving process and indicates mm -hmm. boundary violations. But we, if we are angry, uh, hopefully it's helping us to make a change rather than self you know, immolation or all-consuming anger. We don't want to get um, stuck there. And so I also encourage people, well, what's going on in your town? What things have you joined in your town? Have you done any meetup groups? Or do you join a snowshoeing group or a birdwatching group? Or you have you been going out to the games cafe or anything just to try mm -hmm. and meet people? Because it used to be the church was our one-stop shop. It met all of our needs. We had people there uh, who were repeating our views back to us. We were singing together. There was child care. We were looked after if we were wounded or, or sick or whatever. Now it's on us. We have to actively be building new communities. Our life now will look more like a patchwork quilt where we typically will have this group for this and this group for that. Mm -hmm. But we have to do the work. We have to get out there. And that can be really hard for people who are um, introverted or, you know, it just can be hard sometimes to put ourselves out there. So do it gently. You know, if you're going to go somewhere, give yourself permission to sit by the door in case you want to beat a hasty right. retreat or, you know, when you're full that you can, that you can leave. Um, is your is your university or college hosting any interesting lectures? Are there going to be discussion groups? Just get your toes uh, in the water so you're integrating yourself into the larger world. Yeah, yeah, and and that is so scary for people who have are going through a grief or a loss of their identity. Of like, I'm not sure who I am, so am I going to meet other people? And also, I think that fundamentalist thinking of like. I went to this and I didn't like it, but I'm going to keep going because I'm supposed to. And it's like, well, if you didn't like it, don't go back. That's fine. I love the op the optimistic nihilism reference earlier because it's like, I think people often panic and kind of go to like a nihilistic, well, if nothing means anything, then nothing matters. And it's like, well, that's not, no, <laughs> this is all arbitrary, but that's very freeing and empowering when you get to a space to be able to 
take advantage of it being freeing and empowering. Yeah, and and that's where that's why I also like the um, values clarification work mm -hmm. because I am very aware of the values that I used to have because they were the values my parents and my pastor told me that I had to have. Um, yep. Those are not the same values I have now. I used to put obedience, you know, right at the top of my list, holiness, whatever. Eh, they don't even make it on my list now. Autonomy is like number one. Yeah. I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to make my own choices. Uh, and, and even to go back every few years and review and see, mm -hmm. oh, have, have things changed? Because we change, hopefully, through the years. Yep. We mature and grow, and uh, things that were once very important to us might not even make the cut um, at this point. So we have to give ourselves permission to grow and change and change our mind mm -hmm. and try not to, um, you know, it's like we can be holding so tight to something that actually it's holding us when our identity and our ideology fuse together like that. And then we don't have the space that we need to be able to look at the ideology and say, no, something's wrong here. So we want to learn to hold things loosely so that we can let them go when new information comes to light. Yeah. Yeah. So being a neighbor to the north in Canada, I'm down in America. Um, do you feel like there's a lot of similarities with kind of the culture war stuff and the religious right making a, a big political move? Do you feel like Canada's a little different in that and some of the uh, decline in religion and rise in extremism that that brings about? Or are you seeing like that's pretty similar on the Canadian side of things too? I think it might depend where you live. So I'm in um, the Okanagan Valley uh, in British Columbia, and <clears throat> I'm in quite a waspy uh, city, but it's it's my hometown. It's where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And so it's still pretty churchy. And so yeah. I see we just had one of our city councillors did a some kind of opinion piece in the local newspaper the other day saying how people need to read their Bible. And so I happen to be the vice president of my local Atheist Skeptics and Humanist Association. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, hmm, I don't appreciate that from my uh, counselor. So then there were some letters uh, written um, about this. So yeah, there are definitely still, we got a lot of evangelicals here. And I would say a lot of seniors who are very well-intentioned but who are not aware of the facts of everything they if, especially mm. if they're watching fox news and we don't television stations like fox news are not allowed in canada we have different rules there but people still have satellites or whatever you know you can sure. still get it and so if that sort of nonsense is being preached at their churches uh then it gets them riled up and if they have lots of time on their hands, as lots of seniors do, uh, yeah. then they can really make um, quite a fuss about uh, things. So, yes, we do have that. We do have some Trump supporters, but over here, they're more likely to be what we call convoy supporters because there were sure. a bunch of them who drove to our capital city, Ottawa. Yeah, but <laughs> They set up their hot tubs and their loudspeakers, and they basically held Ottawa hostage as the RCMP went, hmm, I wonder what to do. I wonder what we should do. So we do have extremists um, here. And I still want to say that, for the most part, people are well-intentioned, but I think they are misinformed and misinformation mm -hmm. 
can be deadly. So we do have those issues here. But we have more than just two political parties here. We have several political parties here. So I yeah. think that that makes things a little more better spread out rather than just the intense polarization that we see in the States. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, not to repeat myself, but like working on decolonizing therapy and, and some of those things, like you see how much capitalism plays into the American uh, political system as well. And where progress is very slow because both parties, even if they have different policies and belief systems are beholden to capitalism, which really limits a lot. Um, I look over at those Norway, Finland, Sweden countries that are democratic, socialist, and yeah. non-religious. And I'm like, oh, that looks nice. <laughs> I know, I know. And especially right now with everything uh, you folks have um, going on, it's it's a lot. Your country's having a moment. Yeah, yeah. And it is, it's what you said too, like depends on where you live because I, I'm in the Midwest and I have most of my religious trauma podcast guests, uh, therapists who work with it are on the East Coast or the West Coast. I don't think I've had anybody from the Midwest yet who does religious trauma because there's like four of there's like four of us. <laughs> uh, so you know it it is you know in countries uh, geographically that are this large like yeah the geography actually really matters quite a bit. Um, as with the theme of the podcast, uh, what's self care at this point in your life look like? You've talked about kind of your journey out of fundamentalism and the work that you're doing professionally, but personally, how do you kind of navigate the work you do is heavy? There's a lot of it. How do you kind of navigate all that and, and make sure you're taking care of yourself? Well, in some ways, I feel like <clears throat> I'm not qualified to talk about self care because I have so many things on the go at any one time and we know that being overly busy can can also be a response to trauma mm -hmm. um so i am uh, aware of that i do uh specifically sometimes tell my husband um okay uh, we watched the news tonight and now i want to turn the tv off because he is from the united states so we have a lot of political podcasts that are being played at our place and these sorts of mm -hmm. things. And I say, I've had a heavy day. Would you read to me? I love his voice. He has such a good voice. And then, yeah, he'll just put one of the books off our shelf and read to me for a couple hours. And then I can lie there and I have jigsaw puzzles on my phone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Doing my jigsaw puzzles. And, and I'm listening to his soothing, calming voice and i'm not thinking about all the troubles that are overwhelming this world and of course i do also have uh, a therapist that i call on because sometimes it's just too much mm -hmm. and i need to be able to uh, unburden and talk to um somebody else so we also go bird watching every day he's a retired uh, environmental scientist and ornithologist so we have our binoculars both of us and we try and go out every day and do some bird watching together just being outdoors in the sunshine in the quiet i don't have my phone you know i don't have my yeah. computer those sorts of things that is really helpful so those are things that i do for myself yeah and all lovely things. I had uh, Jared Anderson, the, the crypto naturalist who writes about uh, nature a lot and how it has affected his his depression in a positive way. Um, and he, he talks about like, it's okay to not know the difference between the types of trees. Like nature is good for you. It's okay to not know what bird that is. You can still yeah. enjoy its beauty. Yes. And 
and I I talk about nature being grounding for us, especially those of us who who may have religious trauma or CPTSD or whatever, and like being in nature, being grounded, being in the moment, not being on our phones or social media, like. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay if you're not a certified ornithologist who knows <laughs> what bird that is. You can be that's like, right. "Oh, that's pretty. I like that bird." Yes, and also time with um, time with friends. So mm -hmm. even if I can't, I don't have time to drive over to someone's house and spend hours there. But I might just text my friend and say, "Can we hop on um, Messenger and have a video chat uh, for twenty minutes?" And that is a wonderful use of. Um, technology just to stay connected that way yeah yeah for sure um janice this has been wonderful i'm i was so excited to get to connect with you um i follow your podcast and i'm familiar with court and all these things but um if people want to learn more about you where do they go where do they find you oh yes well uh the youtube channel is called conference on religious trauma and my website is divorcing-religion.com uh, and the podcast is called the Divorcing Religion Podcast, uh, and people can actually reach out to me through my uh, through my website if they yeah. if they'd like to get a hold of me. And I'm on Facebook under my name Janice Selby, uh, and under Divorcing Religion Workshop. And I really do uh, appreciate every message that comes to me. I try and uh, answer back. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, and Shameless Sexuality is the uh other conference you talked about seeing mm -hmm. where that's going to land in the future but um mm -hmm. I, a lot of those speakers uh are featured on our youtube channel as well so that's right and i'm just now starting to upload sessions not only from court but from uh shameless sexuality onto the youtube channel and that is just a fantastic free resource for people for therapists for people mm -hmm. who just want to learn more about religious trauma for people who are sorting through their own religious trauma um that youtube channel has a lot of uh nuggets of gold on it yeah yeah and all those links will be in the show notes here to make them easy to find so janice thanks again for coming on today what a pleasure it was so nice to spend time with you thank you for having me on and to all our wonderful listeners, thanks for tuning in again this week. We'll be back next week with another episode. Take care, everyone.